It's good to be in your midst here again this morning. I come before you again in the fear of God, the one that created heaven and earth and put us here as humans to function on this earth. And as we go about our lives, why, as we looked at in our Sunday school lesson this morning, we make choices. You know, we can do the identical same things for much different purposes. This morning, I would like to look at the subject of godly home life. As we think about marriage, it's an institution that was designed by God for the welfare of mankind, the further propagation of mankind, and for the blessing of society. It's a partnership between a man and a woman and God. And when a couple gets married, they oftentimes have the expectation of a peaceful and a happy married, married life. You know, I don't think anyone here that's married would say that on their wedding day, they expected to have calamity. They just thought that it would, they'd have trouble all their life. I don't think that's the case. You know, someone said that when you get married, it's about like looking at a, a garden seed catalog. You know, this, you see these luscious pictures of tomatoes and beautiful sweet corn ears and green beans and things. I mean, that, that's what we picture on our wedding day. But you know, as life goes on, why we, the, the weeds start coming up by the plants. And I saw that Phillips over there have got their garden covered with a nice covering of uh, plastic that helps prevent some of that. But you know, without that, when the weeds come up, and it's a lot of work to keep those plants healthy and growing strong and well. And that's the way it is in marriage. It takes commitment to God and to our mate. And it involves partly in knowing and accepting who we are and who we married. The work of marriage involves communication and understanding and humility and accepting each other's personalities. It involves intimacy. It involves getting together on money issues. It involves learning to be friends. And so there's a lot of angles to a good marriage. Marriage is a lot of work, but however, we can work hard or we can work smart and it's a there again, it's a lot of difference in how we approach it. But when two people know Christ and approach the marriage from that angle and perspective, it makes a lot of difference. We can love each other and realize godly home life, but it takes a denial of self in order for this to happen. But as we do this, it's a win-win situation. God gets glory, and we have the blessing of a peaceable and a happy relationship with each other, and also we put forth a witness to the world of what home life can be like. And as it says in Ephesians 5, it's an example of Christ in the church. And so we can experience peace and contentment and children can realize security. The first thing I would like to look at this morning is God designed marriage and put his favor on it. In Hebrews 13, it says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. You know, there's other ways to get companionship in life. And we, we enjoy friendships, man-to-man -man and woman-to-woman -woman and such like, and work companionships and friendships. But in the home situation, it's an entirely different category of companionship. It's a closeness that is a blessing to us and to each other and to society and to God. And a marriage that is formed and developed in the atmosphere of moral purity is pleasing to God. God at Eve's creation said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. 
And in the same time frame at creation, God commanded that mankind would be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. Again, in Proverbs 18, it says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. And again, in Genesis, God said, it's not good for man to live alone. And so as we evaluate society today, we realize and observe that marriage is in decline. You know, people live in all sorts of different ungodly arrangements, and it's unfortunate. And, you know, many have chosen not to marry, and some get married and divorced, and maybe multiple times. And others live in a uh, divorced and remarried situation with the problems that come with that and the ex and children from prior marriages. And our hearts go out to people like this that live in insecurity and uncertainty and never knowing when the next great upheaval will come in their life. And, you know, if you think about the blessing of a committed marriage, you know, uh, not so long ago we were... um, had observed a 60th wedding anniversary. And if you think about 60 years together, you know, it's a long time, but it can be a life of agonizing endurance, or it can be a life of blessed companionship and fruitfulness and a furtherance of God's kingdom. And so parents, and especially children, endure untold agony as home splinter and fracture and relationships are broken, and in a vain attempt, try to rebuild with another. I would like to notice at this point that God does call some people to single life, and we recognize that and support this. So let's look to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to uh, first look at this angle and get a few thoughts on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 but I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of, her, of the world, how she may please her, um, her husband. And so the married careth for the things of this world, it says. And there is, so there is that angle that we believe God calls some to single life. And there is a blessing in that. And there is the angle that you can focus more on the things of a spiritual nature. But while God calls some to single life, he also calls many to married life. And a balanced view is that we seek to serve God in whatever capacity he calls us to. And for most of us, however, it is married life. And this type of life gives us many opportunities to learn and to experience relationships and getting along and how to really how to practice holiness in a close setting. Um, You know, when people begin to rub shoulders with each other, there's Figuratively speaking, there's friction, and you need to learn how to work through those things. And so, as we apply godly principles and are committed to godly behavior, we can weather each change as it comes to our family life. And so, as we think about marriage, God designed it, and he put his favor on it. 
And now secondly, I would like to look at some ways to strengthen home life. You know, um, I'd like to spend a few moments here thinking about the um, stage of choosing. You know, many of us are past this stage, but think for a moment about um, when you're choosing a mate. Someone said, when you're choosing a mate, keep your eyes wide open, and after you're married, keep them half shut. And there's a lot of truth to that. In other words, once you've settled and you've passed through the marriage altar and you've made your vows, well then, don't be looking out for the, the wrong things of your mate. You know, they'll come up quickly enough, but try to keep your eyes half shut. In other words, try to uh, get past some of the things that come up. And we'll talk about that a little more. And so, what's involved with keeping your eyes wide open in the choosing process? Let's, in, um, let's turn to Proverbs 11, and here there's a verse that talks about the wisdom of getting counsel you know, um, we as young people think we have it all together. I say we as young people. When we're young, we think we have it all put together. And, but you know, um, you think about if you're, say, let's say you're 18 or 20 years of age. Well, for the first four or five years, you don't really even have memory. So you've got memory of maybe uh, 13 or 15 years. And your parents, if they're in their 40s, would have 35 years worth of memory. And some parents are much older than that. And they, they know much more about you. They've watched you from birth and they've watched you. They have a whole lot of more insight in life than what you have. And, you know, and they've got experiences of life. I told my sons not so long ago that, you know, as a 60-year-old compared to 25-year-old, I said, there's some things that come only by experience. And the only way to get them is to walk through many years of life. And that's the way it is with choosing marriage partners. You know, um, young people don't have real broad vision, although they have a lot. And parents and older people have a lot more. And here in um, Proverbs, did I say chapter 14? It's actually 11. Proverbs 11, verse 14 says, Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And so we need to be open to the advice of parents and other committed people when we go to choose a marriage partner. They probably can see some things that we can't trust or open to people we trust. And also then look for godly commitment. Flipping back a couple pages to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 63, it says, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. You know, people with a strong commitment to God make super marriage partners. They're the ones that are easy to work with because they're working on the negative aspects of their life and it makes it come together a whole lot better. It's the foundation that is necessary for true happiness within the home. When both partners of the home are deeply committed to God, when a difference of opinion comes up, and they will, as we all know, that are married and that have lived a little bit of life, they can relate to those things in a Christian way. And it makes all the difference in the world as to how we come out if we do things in a Christian way or in a carnal way in relationships in general, but in particular in the setting of the home. And let's think for a moment about personality. 
you know, the, this old story goes that opposites attract, and there is some truth to that. You know, sometimes you see people in which the one mate is as quiet as a mouse and the other one is very open and very, um, very outgoing. And this adds spice to life if that's the way it works out. You know, in other situations, why well, both partners are outgoing, or maybe both are quiet, but there is that thing that opposites sometimes get together. But you know, this blending, even though it might add spice to life, can add its own set of problems. You know, if the one person wants to be going and doing something all the time and the other one is content to live at home and quietly, well then, that's something that needs to be worked through. And so, think about those things. It can be a source of trouble if it isn't handled in the right way. So consider whether your two personhoods can blend and work as one. So looking no, more now at married couples who are seeking godly home life, it pays to take a good hard look at our character, our own character. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is God speaking here, and he lists an aspect of his character that is um, appealing. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3 the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. You know, God here is speaking to Israel, who was his hard to get along with people. And he said, I was kind to you. I was lovingly kind to you. And I attempted to draw you with that. And so think about for a moment that love tempered with kindness is a drawing influence and as partners as we attempt to be kind why it helps you know if the food gets burnt or the fix-it job gets put off uh, it pays to respond with kindness um, the other option is to complain about it you know if we when we were dating we had to wait five minutes on our mate well we probably gladly did it but, you know, in real life, when it gets right down and we need to be getting to church and someone's dragging their feet for maybe a good legitimate reason, but it gets real easy to get pushy. And maybe some of that needs to happen sometimes. But we need to push with kindness at the same time, and that, that takes a lot of help. But, you know, thinking about kindness and being considerate, why, you know, I found out this morning that I... I messed up last night. My wife came in here for the first time, and I don't know if you've noticed that I like to visit the restroom before I get up to preach, and we were a little talking about time. We were fairly close on time, adequate but fairly close, and we walked in, and she began to hang up her sweater or whatever, and I left for the bathroom, and I found out this morning that she felt ill at ease being abandoned in the front corner of this building and not knowing what to do or where to go. And so those things can happen. But thank God I've got a God-loving wife and I found out in a kind way and apologized. So, um, you know, loving kindness pays off and it gives div big dividends. In a godly home, we need to love with the everlasting love like God loved us and temper it with kindness. And so, um, you know, we can kindly do things that are helpful to each other. In Ephesians 4, it says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted. And tenderhearted means being soft, delicate, easily touched, sympathetic, compassionate, 
unable to pass out rough treatment. That's tenderhearted. Be kind, tenderhearted. And um, so as you think about, you know, barbed comments or the silent treatment are not helpful. And you know, sometimes calamities come. You know, maybe she backs the car into the garage door or he drops something that's pretty valuable that came from grandmother or whatever the case might be. We live in a fallen world and these things happen. And so we need to choose to be kind in those situations. You know, another character trait that is really valuable is honesty. In Romans chapter 12, it says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. You know, marriage is built on trust, but that trust can be broken. Uh, and if we and our partner agree to something and one or the other breaks it, it's a breach of trust. And a breach like this is serious and it breaks down harmony in the home and lets the other partner hang and loose like wondering what was, what was this word worth? I thought we had an understanding here. And you know, sometimes there are honest misunderstandings. But if the one person stonewalls or gives the silent treatment, it, it really works against, it militates against trust. Someone said that marriages should be clearly sent, but in loving ways, and messages should also be received with understanding. And so open communication in which agreements are made and then upheld is important. But on the other hand, sometimes messages are sent out too clearly and they, these, and, and the partners differ, and they have hurt feelings, and there's a stalemate and an argument. And you know, the way we deal with disagreements is important. Church life is affected by the way our homes are built. Godly home life is not built by continual strife. And my heart goes out to anyone that has this type of an issue going on in their marriage. You know, a couple sometimes need to evaluate why they're so dead set on a given position. You know, sometimes it's small. I heard of a story one time that occurred years ago that a young married couple argued all morning about what kind of a cake they were going to serve for their company meal the next day. And that just exposes how, you know, after some reflection, they themselves told me the story. and. You know, it just exposes how silly and small of things we can get hung up on and determine that it's got to be my way. Uh, you know, why do, why do we do a thing a certain way? You know, maybe I just don't feel like it, or my mom and dad taught me to do this this way, or um, what would others think? You know, the story goes that there's one young bride that when she was preparing to bake a ham, she cut the end off of it and dropped the cut end in beside the rest of the ham and put it in the baking dish. And the husband said, why did you cut the end off? She said, I don't know. She said, my, my mom did that. And so they asked the mom, she said, why do you cut the end off your ham when you bake it? She says, I don't know, grandma did that. So the next time they visited grandma, they said, why did you cut the end off your ham when you baked it? And she chuckled and she said, when we were first married, I didn't have very good pots and my ham wouldn't fit in my baking dish. And so I cut it off so it would fit. And so for three generations, they did things a certain way and thought it was the way to do it. And it was simply a practical thing that the lady had to do because she didn't have an adequate pan. And so, 
you know, why are we so dead set in certain ways? Evaluate those things and recognize that we need to work through these things with some good, godly common sense, and it really helps out. And it pays to work these things out in the privacy of the home, and if there's children, in the privacy where they're not around. You know, it can be the simplest of things sometimes, how we set the thermostat, or where we park the car, or the way he wipes his nose, or the way they push the toothpaste tube, and the list of small things that are not, um, have nothing sinful or wrongness about it can go on and on, and they can irritate us. But these things can be discussed, and if the tones are kept civil and decent, and in the end, some things might need to just be overlooked, you know. Uh, talks about exercising forbearance, and I believe sometimes we just need to do some of that. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll notice there, so a verse, two verses actually, um, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, for if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. And so, as we think about forgiveness, why it applies to all, but in particular within the home. You know, if things come up, uh, sometimes we need to forbear, sometimes we need to forgive, but always maintain that commitment and both partners need to put their best effort forward to exercise godly forbearance, godly kindness, and humility to make this all work together. In Luke 17, it says, If thy brother trespass against thee, and, thee re and rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. You know, we have already looked at such things, such as mannerisms and ways of doing things that we need to forbear. But on the other hand, sometimes mistakes are made to the degree that they're sinful and it really hurts. You know, maybe we're harsh or we are mean in our response. We disregard an agreement. Sometimes things happen that merit forgiveness. And these verses bear out that while there's forgiveness that is necessary on the part of the injured, that the instigator also has a responsibility. And maybe I should have looked up that passage. Let's turn to Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. And we'll notice here the angle of the person who is um, injured and the person who is the instigator that is actually at fault. Luke 17, verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, Repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And so we see that in a marriage, committed marriage between Christian people that love God and are endeavoring to serve him, that we both need to keep our antennas up for, am I doing something wrong here that is an offense and that is um, a problem and repent of it and talk to our partner and on the on the opposite side of the fence if we're the one that is being sinned against why we need to be ready and willing to extend forgiveness and to get godly harmony reestablished in the situation and so if a person 
just stonewalls and maintains innocence when guilt is clear. It really derails the process. It causes a problem. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, thinking about the golden rule. You know, um, if we consider our wife or our husband as, as valuable as ourselves, it really helps. Matthew 7, verse 12 Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You know, as we go about life, why, if we know of something that hurts our mate, we can choose not to do it. You know, it should bring us enjoyment to please our, our other better half. You know, uh, it's so valuable and so important to bless the partner in our marriage and honor God through that. Let's flip to Ephesians chapter 5. And here we have this passage where um, the marriage relationship is compared to Christ and the church. And I'll read several verses here, beginning, first of all, in verses 28 and 29. So ought men to love their, own, their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. So is it, you think here about, it's saying that you should care for your wife or your husband, vice versa. I think it applies either way, as you would yourself. And you know, if you have a terrible accident and your leg gets mangled up, you know, do you say, so what? And let it know you care for it and go to the doctor and get it sewed up and put a cast on or whatever the situation might require. You, and it, this verse brings that out, that you nurture it and care for it, try to bring about restoration. And it says there that love your wives as your own body. Uh, give yourself for her as the Lord has the church. So... We've looked, first of all, about God-designed marriage and put his blessing on it. Secondly, ways to strengthen home life. And thirdly, I would like to look at principles affecting godly home life. And let's look, first of all, at the angle of headship. In verse 23 here of the same chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You know, loving, cherishing leadership coupled with loving, caring support brings about a godly home. You know, uh, in society, men have been selfish and self-centered, and women have rejected their leadership. But the Bible instructs the man to be the head of the home, tempered with loving his wife as his own body, as we brought out there in verse 28 and 29. And so as we think about loving leadership, you know, God has designed the headship order in which it's God and Christ and man and woman. And it doesn't mean less value. It means just simply a different position. And it's important that we accept and embrace this. And it's a blessing to us as we take God-centered instructions and put them into shoe leather and work them out in real life's experiences. It's a real blessing to us. And so, man, we can make the principle of headship easy for our wives by nourishing and cherishing them as it brings out here, valuing them as equal or better to ourselves. And so in discussion for decisions, what women need to have 
equal or greater time to express their views. You know, we need to consider that women have a sixth sense that we men don't have. And sometimes they say, I don't feel quite right about this. And they can't really put a finger on exactly what it is. But there is something about it that they don't really feel good about and alerts them of maybe trouble, intuition, you might say. And so we need to value that input and consider. We're partners in the walk of life. God has given us the role of making the final decision, but it's important that we weigh carefully what is given from our other half. But in the end, men is, are the head of the family, and they are accountable before God for what takes place there. And we need to take that responsibility as provider, protector, and responsibility for spiritual development and relate to our wives delicately. So we have the headship order. Secondly, then, another principle is marriage until death. Jesus said, go ahead and start turning to Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, they are no more twain, but one flesh. And what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And so we have this principle, marriage until death. And here in Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, it says, And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And so we have this angle that is so prevalent in our society today in which uh, you know, they come up many years ago with what they call no-fault divorce, and I think you can even go onto the internet and get it to, get the process started to get a divorce going. And maybe the, I'm not sure how all that is. Thankfully, we have very little or no experience with it. But you know, there is an issue in our society to where even there are a lot of religious leaders who allow this, and maybe even many leaders themselves that are divorced and remarried. And you know it. Dropping back to verse 5 of the same chapter, they, they said, they were raising the questions prior to this, said, you know, back in the Old Testament, Moses said that we could do it, to put it in my words. And in verse 5, Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept, but from the beginning of creation God made them male and female, and for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, though that they are no more twain but one what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And so, you know, the reasons couples don't get along today is the same reasons for hard hearts. You know, they're not willing to be soft and workable and trying to come to common ground in the marriage altar, the home, so to speak. In Philippians 2, it says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so, you know, when each partner is inclined toward the other and is willing to deprive ourselves for the common good, they both gain from it. Marriage is strengthened, and God gets the glory. You know, I like to use the expression, you can win by losing. And think through that a little minute, for a moment. If you have, both have pretty strong feelings about something, why, the only way common ground can be found is somebody yields. You can win by losing. You can say, okay, I'll, I'll give up here and we'll work, we'll do it your way. 
but you win by giving up your right there to have this, your opinion, and the, the strength of the marriage is gained and built considerably. And so as we think about it, um, 1 Corinthians 13 in the love chapter, it says, love suffereth long and is kind. And you know, if these two instructions alone were taken seriously by every marriage partner, there'd be very little issue and conflict in the marriage. Love suffers long and is kind. And so if you have true love for your partner, why, you'll endure a long time and you'll be committed to kindness regardless of what comes up. As we fully obey God in relating to each other, it removes the need for divorce. Let's turn to Malachi chapter 2, the last book in the Old Testament, and God declares here his feelings toward divorce. As I brought out there in this passage, um, or as I read here in this passage, they, they indicated that Moses allowed for divorce in the Old Testament. But here in Malachi chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 13, um, you know, these people were experiencing all sorts of problems here in life. And they were putting out offerings and offering offerings before God. And, and fruit wasn't coming from them. And they couldn't quite figure it out. And here it says, And this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, wherefore? In other words, why is this the case? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did he not make one? Yet he had the residue of spirit. And wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith, that's pretty important language there. God is saying that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. God here says, I hate putting away. I despise when couples split up. I love harmony. It's a symbol of Christ in the church, jumping the New Testament analogy. And so God said here, you've, you've people were offering these alterings. You're watering down the altar with your tears of whatever that might have engendered those tears. And you're crying out and you realize that God's not honoring your offerings. And why is it? Because you're acting treacherously toward the wife of your youth and you're not honoring the marriage covenant. And he said, God made them one, verse 15. And what was the purpose? That he might seek a godly seed. In other words, the propagation of the family as Christian people come together and in the nurture of that setting, bring forth children that go forth to serve and honor God. God gets honor and glory and his kingdom is furthered. So God hates divorce. I'd like to look now at the value of children. Let's turn to Psalm 127. You know, in our society today, um, you know, 40 years ago, the two-child home was considered ideal, but um, it's, it's gotten even worse than that. Um, you know, there are some that have none, and they have pets, and that they give them human-like status. Um, you know, down our way, I've seen a pet cemetery, and I've seen ads to where you can lay your pet to rest with a 
practically a full-blown funeral and set up a tombstone and you know they're they're animals we might enjoy their company for a time but they are what they are children are the heritage of the lord it says here uh, psalm 127 verse 3 it says children are in heritage of the lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man so are children of the youth happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them they shall not be ashamed but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate and so children are a gift from god and you know in society the same people that will leave a partner for self-interest will also not desire children or abandon children you know sometimes you hear about couples breaking up and the mother just walks away from the children that she has born and some of those are relatively young yet and you wonder how could you ever do this um, you know children are a blessing uh, people don't want to be burdened by these children they want their own way and their own thing children are work but they're a blessing if we let them be we need to highly value children as a heritage of God and as a way to further his kingdom. Accept them gladly, care for them cheerfully, and make their lives present, pleasant. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 19 now, thinking of the Christian home. Well, maybe this is getting a little bit on the edge, but it, it does involve it. It's talking about the value of the elderly in number, or, I'm sorry, I'm in the book of Numbers, Leviticus, 19th chapter, verse 32, it says, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head, and honor the face of the old man, and fear thy God, I am the Lord. You know, in society, there's more and more pressure to do away with the elderly who are considered as an inconvenience. I saw recently where a man in a western state that had a possible terminal illness, that he was twice denied uh, money for treatments by his health care carrier. But both times they offered to fund euthanasia for him. And I think that as time goes on that we're going to have more and more pressure in this area as, they, as the costs get higher and they realize that they could save some money by just terminating a life. We're, we're going to need to choose how we're going to relate to these issues. And so it's important that we recognize God's uh, will on the matter. Honor the face of the old man and fear thy God, for I am the Lord. As it, in Psalm, or Proverbs 23, it says, despise not thy mother when she is old. And as time goes on, these pressures are going to get closer to home. So in conclusion, we achieve godly home life by keeping God's principles. Not everyone has the same role within the home, but we all have the same responsibility. Yield to God. Serve God in the context of loving and cherishing and respecting each other. And as we hold God's principles high in our home, we can be what God intended to be, a haven that shows the world how much Christ loves the church.